all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Brian Clark. He is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's an expert in naval operations, electronic warfare, autonomous systems, military competitions, and wargaming. Hey, Brian, welcome to Veterans Radio. Uh, thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Well, let me tell folks, if they're not familiar with the Hudson Institute, that it was formed about uh, 62 years ago. It's a think Washington, D.C. kind of think tank. It helps in the areas of uh, strategic transitions through uh, managing strategic tr- transitions through interdisciplinary studies in defense and international relations and economics. Uh, it seeks to guide policymakers and global leaders in government and business through robust programs of publications and conferences. Brian comes to this with uh, time at the Navy, um, where he was in uh, director of uh, CNO Strategic Actions Group and a strategic planner. He then did time at DOD in the Office of Net Assessment and in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So you're, you're pretty deep in, uh, in Navy matters and policy, big picture items. Uh, that, that kind of a fair summary of uh, your career? Yeah, it is. You know, so I do focus a lot on Navy, uh, being a retired Navy guy. Um, and I also focus on some of the kind of emerging areas of technology and warfare. So, you know, un- unmanned systems, uh, artificial intelligence, electronic warfare, uh, 5G, um, you know, some of those new technologies that might be relevant to the military. So, yeah, so I kind of um, focused on those areas, but Navy occupies a lot of my time. Well, this is why I wanted to focus on that because this is a kid who went to the University of Idaho. And I always think it's hilarious when I talk to these Navy guys and they're from states where there's no oceans, there's no big water around. <laughs> How'd you go from Idaho to the Navy? Uh, yeah, well, so my uh, my stepfather was in the Navy, um, and all, but more importantly, my um, my best friend growing up uh, in high school uh, joined the Navy, enlisted in the Navy, and so he uh, convinced me to join as well because uh, we both got like fifty dollars signing bonuses if we did it as <laughs> you know friends. Um, so that's what 
did it and then i just kind of stayed with it <laughs> well you found out it's something you're good at and you enjoyed and he went on uh, brian went on to get his master's in national security strategy and he's attended the uh, u.s national war college he's got a lot of uh, this kind of experience but i wanted to have him on because of something that i did oh about six years ago six years ago veterans radio talked to the then uh, captain of the USS Detroit as it came through the Great Lakes after being built in Marionette, Wisconsin. And uh, it was one of those Freedom-class littoral combat ships which uh, got built, and I think there's maybe 14, 15 of them. Great ballyhoo at the time. These were going to be the new and upcoming um uh, ships that could to go into shallower waters. They, they were supposed to have this great capability, modular capability that they could handle different types of platforms uh, uh, from uh, missiles to helicopters and everything in between. Boy, it was really talked up as a great, uh, a great new step forward for the Navy. And now we're six years later and the Navy is proposing to retire the USS Detroit. Uh, among uh, nine other freedom class LCSs and they may sell them to the foreign governments or they may scrap them or who knows what they're going to do with them exactly at this uh, time there were 35 of these planned the Navy invested something like 4.5 billion dollars in this uh, project but it didn't work out did it Brian uh, no, it didn't. It, I mean, it worked out in a way. I mean, the Navy is going to get some benefit from these ships uh, at the end. They're not going to get rid of all of them. Um, so they will um, you know, y- yield some benefit to the Navy. But uh, yeah, big investment for what in the end is going to be a relatively small number of ships on a, devoted to a pretty limited set of missions. As you've thought about this as a guy who's really deep in strategic thinking and budgets, what do you think went wrong with the decision? And, and and maybe you can even tell our veteran radio listeners, these are long-term decisions. This was made decades ago, but kind of what went off course? Well, you kind of, from the very start, the program uh, had sort of an ill-defined set of missions that it was trying to pursue. Um, and the uh, con ops, you know, the tactics they were going to use to pursue them were not really well uh, argued or articulated at the beginning. And so as, as a result, the ship started out, you know, with, you know, kind of a continuing, a, a constantly changing set of requirements. So um, they were intended initially to go very fast because the argument was that was how they were going to uh, deal with the small boat threat is to go fast, you know, use their guns to shoot small boats like you'd see with the Iranians uh, in the Persian Gulf. Um, and that they needed to be shallow draft because they were going to operate in close to shore environments like the Persian Gulf or the South China Sea, um, or maybe the East China Sea. Um, and that they needed to um, have this ability to uh, take on a changing set of mission systems. So they're going to have these interchangeable mission packages because it's too small a ship to be able to do uh, the three big missions the Navy needed done, which was anti-submarine warfare, mine clearing, and surface warfare or maritime security. And this ship was too small to have all the stuff on it to do all those missions at the same time. So it would change out the mission packages based on what mission was most important at the time. So those were kind of some initial ideas the Navy had, but they hadn't really engaged with the industry, people who had built the ships, 
uh, or at the engineers and architects who would design them to figure out if that was feasible. <laughs> uh, and if it was feasible, is it practical? <laughs> um, and as they built the ships and as they tried to field them, they realized that that scheme was not, neither feasible or practical. Um, and in the end, it be, ended up being very expensive to yield, you know, like I said, a small number of ships in the end that are going to uh, really kind of be focused on a narrow set of missions. So mine clearing is still going to be their you know, kind of main job. And then secondarily, their job is maritime security in kind of the close to shore environment. Um, but anti-submarine warfare fell off the table. Um, and the idea of interchangeable mission packages is, is off the table as well. And that, that really interchangeable mission package was a big part of what uh, LCSs were, were apparently going to do. And again, that kind of didn't work its way out. Did any of these uh, get deployed overseas? Uh, oh, yeah. So the, the, um, they have two varieties of LCS. There's one which is a monohull or it looks like a kind of a traditional warship. Um, and that's the Freedom class. And uh, those have deployed to the South America, Central America, Caribbean. Um, one has deployed um, overseas to the Persian Gulf. Um, and um, one has deployed to the Freedom itself, um, has deployed uh, over to the South China Sea. Um, so they've had some success, but those have been mostly kept close to home because they have a transmission problem that um, has resulted in a lot of ships being stranded in various places because the transmission has a lot of, you know, ends up failing fairly often. Um, it's just like having a car with a bad transmission. Uh, and they've had to go through and replace those transmissions. And so that's really kept those ships from deploying very much. The other flavor of LCS is the Independence class, which is a trimaran. So it's, it looks like a three-hulled ship. It's sort of futuristic looking, very wide. So it's 100 feet wide. Um, so definitely not like a normal Navy warship. Um, that ship has had more success in deploying overseas. So they've been deploying those, and they're based mostly in San Diego. So they deploy out to the South China Sea, and they've been deploying at a pretty regular tempo over the last two years now. Um, and so you've seen uh, the Navy, you know, put a lot more emphasis on those as your as the overseas deployers. Um, and they're and the Navy is saying in the, its most recent plans that it's going to keep at least a dozen of those of the 16 they built originally or building. They'll keep about a dozen of those independence class, those trimaran ships. Um, so they've been pretty successful deploying overseas. But but again, both classes have not deployed very much considering the classes of, of ships have been around for 20 years almost. Um, and they put a lot of money into them. The fact that they've gotten, you know, maybe a dozen deployments out of them is, is not that impressive. <laughs> now, and as somebody who cares about the Navy as you do and understands the, uh, the costs and the benefits uh, in the Navy planning, talk a little bit about if, if in your view, this should have been caught earlier, uh, correction should have made, or the whole program should be scrapped, although there are still folks who claim you know, the program shouldn't be scrapped. I guess that, that raises for me, a, do you think it should be scrapped? Yeah, so the, um, yes, I think the, the program shouldn't be scrapped. And one of the main reasons is because the ships that the LCS was intended to replace have already left the fleet. They've already retired, right? So the LCS is intended to replace uh, frigates that were built during the Cold War, the Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates, which um, did, you know, like escort missions and anti-submarine warfare. 
um, but then maritime security and counter piracy in their later years. So they were used a lot for like a maritime security type missions in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Aden, you know, during those years. So the LCS still can do that mission, uh, even if it can't do the anti-submarine warfare. Um, the other ships that are intended to replace are the minesweepers that are currently retiring right now out of the fleet. Uh, and they're mostly in the Persian Gulf. Almost all of them are based right there in, in uh, Bahrain. Uh, and then the other class of ship they're replacing are the patrol craft, which are also stationed mostly in Bahrain. Um, so those three classes of ships are leaving the fleet or have left the fleet. So you need something to do that job. Um, so the LCSs can do that, um, albeit limited numbers. Um, so I think you got to keep them around for that. Uh, and the Navy's going to have to do some things to mitigate the the liabilities that the, these ships have. So um, because the because neither one of them really is uh, designed for frequent long transits because they've got either the transmission problems with the Freedom class or the Independence class. The Trimaran actually has problems with hull cracking because it's made out of aluminum. Um, neither ship is really designed for these long back and forths across the ocean. So the Navy's going to have to probably station most of them overseas so they don't have to make those transits uh, and then keep them over there. Um, and then they can do this job, you know, basically local kind of close to shore operations. Uh, which is an important mission for the Navy, and they don't have anything they can do that right now because they're retiring all those ships. So I think you got to keep them around for that reason, uh, and that's why the Navy is arguing they're going to keep, you know, probably half of the original uh, LCS. Um, but that means you're retiring a lot of ships, sixteen to twenty ships that um, have only, uh, you know, in some cases a few years of service on them. <laughs> um, so it's 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 a big waste of money in the end. Um, but in the but you got to keep some of them because there's no alternative. Yeah, you're keeping you're keeping your old Chevy because you don't ever you can't afford the replacement. You know it leaks oil, but you gotta you gotta just keep putting oil in it every two weeks. Um, exactly. Not not the not the best vehicle to have. It sounds like these are ships that have some degree of functionality, but certainly don't fall into the uh, uh, level of um, uh, asset that maybe we would expect for the money that we we have invested as uh, taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. So for the for the missions they're going to end up doing, you know, the Navy could have gotten by with a much less expensive ship that they could have bought, you know, more or less on the open market because um, there's even U.S. ship builders that build small ships for overseas customers for other countries, um, you know, that could have been used for these purposes. Um, but the Navy, because they kind of started out with this idea of this very sophisticated um, ship that was going to go very fast, that was going to do these inter interchangeable modules, that was going to um, you know, be able to operate with a lot of automation. You know, all those things drove them towards uh, custom built as opposed to using something that was pretty close to what was already available in the market. Um, and that's and so they ended up now today with essentially falling back to using those very custom built ships for purposes that they could have used a you know uh, ship off the shelf for. Yeah, we were told back in 2016 that this was a very high-tech ship, that uh, the uh, crew, while smaller, uh, would be very high-tech capable. Um, did, did that bear itself out, or again, did uh, the planning uh, overshoot the mark? Yeah, so what's interesting is the automation did does work. I mean, so the automation in terms of making it so the ship can you know, run around and, and do its mission without as many people. Um, that did pan out so that the ships are able to operate with a smaller crew than an equivalent sized ship of the past. So they're about 3,000 tons. Um, the Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates were about 4,000 tons. So 
you know, they were about a quarter, I guess, a third bigger. Um, but the crew of the LCS, the you know, normal kind of operating crew is like 50 people, whereas the crew of a Perry frigate was more like 120 people, 130 people. You know, so you do have a savings in personnel there. The problem ends up being in maintenance. Um, so to maintain the ship um, and to do the damage control, but mostly the maintenance, you need a bigger crew. So they've had to augment the crew to be more like 70 people so that they would sufficient people to do the maintenance and actually sustain the ship on a you know longer duration deployment. Um, which, you know, so you, it's still less people than you would have on an equivalent ship of the past, but it's not as small a crew as that they had originally hoped. And all of those things, in addition to the, you know, the, the fuel efficiency is pretty low consider because they had to make the ships be able to go fast in the original concept. So because the engines are designed for operating at high speed and because they've got this bigger crew, the operating cost of the ship has gone up. So it costs nearly as much to operate one of these ships as it costs to operate a destroyer, which is a much larger ship. You know, a destroyer today is three times the size of an LCS, but uh, an LCS costs about $60 million a year to operate and a destroyer costs 70 to $80 million a year to operate. So that's, to, if you talk, if you really get Navy officials down and force them to answer, um, they'll tell you that the main reason they're having to retire these ships is the operating costs are just too high given the benefit or the, the capability that they provide. Yeah, and you have uh, to augment the crew almost by half uh, to deal with maintenance issues at a time when right. all of the services are having challenges with their manpower requirements. And, and again, we're talking uh, for our veteran radio listeners, we're talking to Brian Clark. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He focuses a lot on uh, defense issues, uh, Navy issues, uh, really has a lot of expertise there. And let me tell folks also that this LCS class, the, the, the ships are about 400 feet in length. They're a little shorter than that. They displace about 3,400 metric tons. And and uh, Brian's mentioned a couple of times that they're supposed to go fast. Well, their top speed is something like 45 knots. So, so they did they do go fast, but they also burn up a lot of fuel uh, in doing that. And and the ships have some transmission problems and hull problems, depending on which of the two classes. As as you think your way through this, uh, Brian Clark for the Hudson Institute. Um, do you see, as you look at Navy budgets and plans, that the lessons have been learned here, uh, that the next round of ships being proposed to replace this set, uh, which replaced our frigates and minesweepers and patrol craft, that we've learned the lessons, that, that maybe there's some off-the-shelf items that work better than the specialty items? What's the, how, how do you read what you're seeing now from the Navy? Well, Jim, the... Um so in part, they learned the lesson. So in the newest class of surface ship that they've developed, the new Constellation class frigate, uh, which is going to do the anti-submarine warfare mission that the LCS couldn't do, um, and also replaces the, the Perry class frigates on a more for one for one basis, right? So these new frigates they're developing and are building up in uh, Marinette, Wisconsin. Um, they took the approach of this idea of using off-the-shelf technology. So they went in with the idea that we're going to use an existing frigate design from another country, which many countries have, especially in Europe, have these frigates, uh, frigates of this kind. Um, they ended up selecting the Frem frigate, which is built by, by Italy's uh, Think and Terry shipbuilding. Um, but then they modified that ship so much in the course of the DOD's requirements process 
that the ship you know went from it's about a 6,000 6,500 ton ship in the Italian Navy to be more like an 8,000 ton ship in the U.S. Navy. So it grew by more than a quarter uh, in terms of size and added a bunch of capabilities and and you know requirements and and different systems that the original didn't have. So. They have this had a ship off the shelf that would have been a pretty affordable option, and then they larded onto it a lot of new stuff that is going to uh, increase its cost, uh, both to buy it and also to operate it. So we'll see in the end if that ship ends up being a good example of you know, acquisition reform in, in action, or if it ends up being another kind of boondoggle like the LCS was. Um, but that's like a, that's that, that's the case study for the United States Navy is that did we learn the lessons from LCS and apply them in this new frigate program? It's good. Um, as somebody who has such a deep dive in this stuff, as you put out your reports and analysis, um, what kind of uh, reception do, does the Hudson Institute receive when trying to communicate uh, both to the Capitol Hill politicians, but the industry probably in general, and the folks over in the Pentagon at DoD. I mean, do, do you uh, do you feel like okay, they are getting our message, we are getting some of this across, or do you look at it and go, man, why did they grow the uh, the, the Constellation class frigate from the off the shelf to to the uh, you know almost uh, another third? Yeah, I feel like we we do get traction with the work that we do. I mean, we've been able to you know, influence what the Navy is buying and the Navy and Marine Corps actually as a team are buying. Um, so there's been some good examples of where you know, we've been able to successfully drive the thinking there um, or at least you know, provide some more visibility to things that they would then you know, choose to do by themselves. Um, I think what happens here is that even if, even though we've done reports, including reports for the Department of Defense, so the Navy hires us to do work, um, like this. So they, they ask us for our input. Um, what happens though is that those good ideas go into the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy in this case is what grew in this case the frigate requirements to make the ship a third bigger you know, than it was originally designed to be. Um, because you know there's just nobody is willing to take any risk and everybody it's easier to add things than to take things off or to say no um so i think it's the bureaucracy that tends to drive towards making things bigger and more expensive in the u.s because there's not necessarily the same sense of you know economic uh, economic stress or affordability as you would have in a foreign navy so foreign navies go in with a cost cap and say this thing cannot cost more than a certain number of dollars or, or euros um in the united states it's sort of the requirements first and then we figure out how much it costs on the back end and that's that's kind of the fundamental problem is the bureaucracy is not driven to think in terms of uh, being economical they're driven in terms of lowering risk and you know preventing somebody from coming back to them with a uh, example of how they failed to, you know, make the ship as survivable as it could be, or as lethal as it could be. Yeah, and, and we, we all understand that the U.S. Navy um, mission requirements are a lot different than the Italian Navy mission requirements. But we're we're in a world where where China and China's the demand to control sea power, certainly over in its lanes, um, is is so prevalent. Uh, do you have a, an unfair question with a few minutes remaining, but can you give us uh, sort of the think tank view on how the U.S. Navy is doing to meet the challenges of the Chinese Navy? I, they're doing pretty well, actually. I mean, I think they, 
the thing that they're doing well is um, building a fleet designed to meet the challenge posed by China in an invasion of Taiwan. Um, what they're doing less well is dealing with the China challenge that happens every in every other way. So the you know island building, the gray zone harassment of our allies, the um, potential for blockades of Taiwan or of quarantines. Uh, the U.S. Navy is not really building a, a fleet that's able to deal with those problems very well. But they are focused on this idea of dealing with the invasion problem, um, which they're they're doing a, a good job at, arguably. So I think, you know, it's a matter, too, of where the incentives are and, you know, what's the strategy? What are our priorities with regard to China? And I think right now the priority has been focused on the invasion and therefore that fleet is what they're building. And that's things like LCS are not as important to that mission. Therefore, they tend to be easy to take off the table. Um, but maybe those things like LCS would be important if you were worried more about dealing with the, you know, the Chinese harassment in the gray zone rather than, you know, the invasion of Taiwan. Yeah, and we see them building islands, uh, which is a whole other maritime problem and their launch of their, I think their second aircraft carrier, uh, the, maybe the first one that they built. Uh, but there's certainly a, a big ramp up in the Chinese uh, naval fleet. Um, and somebody's got to respond to it, and, and I'm glad to hear that uh, the U.S. Navy is trying to build in that direction, and Congress is, is funding that. If you had a piece of advice for, for them in that area, what would it be? I, it would be to sort of expand the scope of scenarios that we're planning for with regard to China, you know, and think about balancing uh, the needs for a blockade and the needs for a quarantine or the needs to um, protect our allies from harassment uh, against the needs for an invasion to make sure that we're not, you know, putting all our eggs in one basket. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to get myopic and only focus on one thing. Well, I, I really appreciate the time that uh, Brian Clark, Senior Fellow at uh, Hudson Institute, you've been able to give us today to illuminate for us a little bit of the problems with the LCS class six years ago. We were so hopeful, uh, maybe naive, but hopeful, and and uh, giving us a little thoughts uh, about uh, the Navy and, and uh, the, the Chinese problem. Uh, Brian, again, thanks thanks for your time today. Oh, you're welcome, Jim. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time... You are dismissed.